This episode was originally recorded on the 26th of November. We had an unforeseen delay in the editing process. That means that we're only just getting it uploaded now. I would just like to put that out there just to explain in case we're overtaken by events and you're wondering why we're talking about certain things and not talking about other things. And it was just to give you that context. So I've delayed you enough. I'll let you get on with listening to the podcast and hand you over to the amazing host, which is me. Welcome to Hollywood Unguided, the Stockton North of political podcasts. Season 6, episode 11. I am your host, David McClement, broadcasting from the Blantyre Free State. And joining me this evening is the other VW, Ungag's warrior poet, Sky's Mammy, it's Val Waldron. And introducing the third member of this evening's triumvirate, back making her second appearance in Hollywood Ungagged, it's the SNP councillor for Clydebank Central, Sophie Trainer. I have been training myself not to say Sophie Turner every time I read that. I don't know where it came from. Just the last couple of times when I was practising it, I kept saying Turner, but it's not Sophie Turner, it's Sophie Trainer. Sophie Turner it rarely engages in Scottish politics. You know, that isn't the first time that's happened to me. Yeah. How's everybody getting on? How's preparations for Christmas? My goodness, the C word. Well, it's upon us. It's still November, though, David. Give us a, give us a break. Well, that is true, but it doesn't feel like it in my house. We don't have the decorations up yet, but mm. birthday present, uh, sorry, Christmas present buying is well underway. <sighs> I get dragged to do an inventory of everything my wife's been buying since February um, to make sure we've got enough for the various children. Um, I say that my job is just to kind of stand there and nod because if I try to give any advice, I get a really withering look, but she wants that reassurance of me standing there rather than yeah. just staying herself. I can understand why the house full of kids you'd want to be organised, but I, I don't. Well, I have the luxury of just enjoying the twinkly lights and the, the nice frosty air outside and it's starting to gently let Christmas uh, find its way in. Yeah, I'm about the same as Val there. I've just started my Christmas shopping, so mm-hmm. we'll see how it goes. <laughs> well, Let's get ungagged. The first item in the agenda this evening. The Guardian revealed this week that the King is profiting from the deaths of thousands of people in the northwest of England, whose assets are secretly being used to upgrade a commercial property empire managed by his hereditary estate. The Duchy of Lancaster has collected tens of millions of pounds in recent years under an antiquated system that dates back to feudal times. Financial assets known as bona vacantia 
owned by people who died with without a will or known next to kin or collected by the duchy. Over the last 10 years, it's collected more than £60 million in the funds. It's long claimed that after deducting costs, revenues are donated to charity. However, only a small percentage of these revenues is being given to charity. Internal documents seen by the Guardian reveal the funds are secretly being used to finance and renovate properties, part of a portfolio rented out for profit. Val, what's your thoughts on this? Um, up the Republic, <laughs> Republic in the first instance. Yeah, seriously, I kind of hope that's going to make people sit up and think a wee bit. Yeah, I think I've long known that um, if you're, you don't have the, if you die in intestate, the money goes back to the Treasury. I had no idea about this. It doesn't apply in Scotland, we know, but I do wonder about the estates up here in Scotland. Is it still going? I mean, because they have, like, they're out, apparently it was um, Victoria and Albert, in their time they became out now owners of Balmoral and uh, they have the privilege of all the tax breaks and everything up here. So it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest if they're also getting all their nice fancy wallpapers and whatever else and, and from those dodgy funds. I don't know. But it, it, yeah, it's, it's actually, it's criminally horrible. It's, it's disgusting. Yeah, I think um, I second the comments you made about hopefully it does make people sit up and pay a bit more attention as to what's actually happening. It's quite frankly unethical to be doing this or at least to be doing it when they're saying it's going to charity and it not happening. You know, Royals profiting off the deceased is, is truly a new low. And it is, it's just showing they're so out of touch with the common people when they are going, yeah, we're getting this money, it's going to charity, and then nothing's actually happening. Yeah, I mean, that's that whole bit about it, claiming it's going to charity and sort of funneling like a, a fraction of it. There's been a lot of examples of powerful people using charity as a smokescreen like that, kind of to protect their image. And, you know, we've seen a lot of celebrities do it, we've seen politicians do it. I mean, if you want to help people then help build a fairer society don't just throw some coins in the poor box but I suppose that's Kent they get their cake and eat it that way they can feel that they're being you know generous and get all the plaudits for that but they get to keep most of the money as well there was a thing recently that I heard I think it was when the, the, the there was the wildfires in Hawaii and a lot of celebrities were like pledging like 10 million dollars and things like that I only heard recently because I've heard that loads of times before but when they pledge rather than donate they're not actually giving any of their own money. What they're saying is they'll get us to donate that by, like, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know, doing voiceovers and, you know, encouraging through social media. So, mm-hmm. like, they're, like, getting all this plaudits for, like, million-dollar donations without actually spending a penny. That's like a kind of sponsorship putting their, their name behind it, yeah. No, it's absolutely vile. And I know this sounds... Pretty horrible, but all the children and need stuff and everything. I just can't bear it. It's just, it just feels completely wrong. I mean, why don't they open their own pockets and wallets and, and just make donations and keep quiet about it if they feel that strongly about it or speak out more strongly against or speak out against the government or whatever, do something useful? I think I second that about in terms of, you know, these people who are, who are famous and have all this money making, making it seem like they're giving it away. And expecting other people to, it's the same, like you're saying, in the children's, children's need situation. And it is a bit like, well, if you feel that strongly about it, put your money where your mouth is. Yeah, and also yeah. like the, the David Beckham scandal, it seemed to go away really fast. Where there was the email leak where he was constantly moaning to his agent saying, look, I've done some more charity work, am I going to get a knighthood now? And like, <laughs> it's like, well, you're obviously mm-hmm. doing it for the right reasons. If you're throwing tantrums every time the... Honours list comes in and your, your knighthood's not on it. Um, it hardly seems in the 
and the spirit of charitable giving. But it's also the sheer greed of it, you know. You get thousands of people using food banks, people struggling to pay the outrageous energy bills, and then all this money isn't it going anywhere. The states of people that have died don't have next to kin. What we do with that money? Oh, let's get it to the literally the most privileged man in the country. It's so upside down. Yeah, I mean, the last I heard about it, um, Buckingham Palace would not comment. I don't know if that's... I mean, that's easy, isn't it? That's a, a nice way out of it, you know. It keeps the story... Well, that's it. Puts a line under it. They won't see anything end off. So I don't know if anybody's commented yet, but that's it. It's like, you know, suck it up, baby. These stories uh, have a habit of not having legs. You know, they appear and people are outraged and almost as fast they disappear through the front pages. Yeah. They get buried under news stories and then it's just kind of forgotten about. You know, we would we, constantly get told that it's okay. Hereditary monarchy is okay because they don't actually have any real power. Well, nobody nobody knew about this until like a few days ago that they were scooping up millions of pounds um, mm-hmm. that people would assume would be going to the treasury to pay for stuff for the country. You know, it's a bit like the story we spoke about last year about the Queen's consent that she was yeah. lobbying and getting laws changed. And, you know, everybody said a royal consent that's just like about, you know, the Queen, she just has to rubber stamp these things, you know, to make it official, but no, she can't refuse. But nobody was talking about that she had this other privilege that she was getting notifications about the laws as soon as they were proposed, right at the very start, so that she could intervene, or so her aides could intervene and get changes made to the laws, so that she would never need to veto anything with a royal assent, because... It was making sure nothing that threatened her interests would ever get that far. Yeah, I mean, this is the received beliefs, isn't it? That they're not really very powerful. But also, I mean, that Charles is um, very um, ecology-minded and other, you know, does wonderful work up in his estate. Does it hell? I mean, his grouse moors are an absolute disgrace. Uh, yeah, people still, you know, they quite like his image, but don't really want to dig deeper and I don't know I mean you'll never hear it anything I, I still think people who are apolitical who are busy who work for whatever reason just don't dig into things if they're not getting it fed onto them fed to them every day in the media the way we are like Michael Matheson's iPad all the rest of it then they don't care and they don't know so I've not heard a, okay it was in the Guardian but I've not heard a peep about it on our local radio stations. That, that's, a, that's a great example of what I was saying about some stories magically don't have legs and disappear within days. I mean, mm-hmm. how long has the media been running constant stories about this uh, iPad thing? A pitiful amount of money compared to like millions and millions of pounds been scooped up by the king and his estates. Yeah, I'm afraid that's my one of my bugbears um, one of the wee themes that runs through the things that made me mad, make me mad along with um, Labour in Scotland but I'll see nothing else at the moment I'm sure that'll reappear The Tory circus at Westminster rolled on this week as revelations from the Covid inquiry revealed incompetency, incompetency and cruelty at the, and indifference at the top of government during the pandemic, while the Chancellor was accused of conducting a cynical attack on sick and disabled benefit claimants due to the measures in this year's autumn statement. Sophie, let's pick up on the COVID points first. Have you saw much from the COVID inquiries? Honestly, I do think it's a bit like what you were saying in terms of certain things making the media a lot more than others. And I do think some of the stuff that's come out over the autumn statement has kind of hid that under some stuff in terms of the main news points. I don't know if it's for the, the better or not, considering 
what was in the autumn statement, but it's all linking into one another, really. Yeah, I mean, we were in that, that situation in this podcast. You know, we came up with our kind of pick our topics week to week, and I had the COVID inquiries in the running, and then when the autumn statement thing stuff came up, you know, we're like, well, do we talk about this? Do we talk about that? So making an attempt here to kind of squeeze them together. So I just think, yeah, that's right. I agree with you. So it's layer upon layer of stuff and you can't begin to kind of really get into anything before the next thing comes along. Yeah, the sort of, the, one of the narratives coming out of the inquiry so far is that Rishi Sunak, who obviously was a chancellor at the time, uh, is recorded in one of the diaries that Boris Johnson referred to him as being part of the pro-death squad to say that they were that intent of prioritising economic uh, reopening, that they were willing to put public safety at risk. And much of this centres around the Eat Out to Help Out scheme, the kind of short scheme in the summer of 2020, that encouraged people to go out and mix in cafes and restaurants in order to support businesses. But the scheme was told this week that none of the scientific experts were consulted in that, never mind signed off on it. Uh, what do you think of that? I think it's once again the Tory um, and it's ample the Tory government choosing to punish the most vulnerable people for their own benefit. You know, it's the same thing you're seeing in autumn statement. It's the same thing you've seen multiple times in their their many years in government. Well, I quite agree, and I think a lot the whole business about the, the kind of nitty gritty of this. Um, is it eighteen? You have eighteen months to find a job, or else you're on some return to work type scheme. Is that the, the, the nub of it? And a lot of it. But I mean, people we lost a lot of people after Brexit, didn't we? And who's going to pay for that? Well, the most vulnerable people, because you know there are shortages, terrible shortages of. Of labour and uh, um, especially in hospitality as well, and I think it's going to be an absolute disaster for people. Because and most people I would say do want to work; they want to have fulfilling working lives or whatever, and something that they enjoy, that well paid, that are going to support themselves and their family to a good. You know, just hopefully, a lot of us have enjoyed throughout our, our lives, but there's absolutely no concession to the fact that. A lot of these jobs are out of town in shopping malls and whatever. You've got to get there, you've got to get back. It takes time, it takes money, it takes training. A lot of people haven't been in work since, um, you know, all the kind of you know, the technologies changed, the carers, the parents, etc. And I think it's going to make bad enough the whole thing about the, um, uh, well, the, the changes to the work capability assessment. That was always brutal. It always brutal, traumatised people, and I think it's going to drive people to their graves. It already does, we know that. Yeah, I think they're absolute cruel swine, really. And it's and it's obviously, I mean, there's nothing nothing new in any of this. You know, they're all the same, whether it's um, trusts or Sunak or whatever. It's all about, at the moment, it's about baiting Labour, because Labour, sorry, there ago go, Labour, but um, Labour can't make, are scared to make any kind of commitment to overturn anything that the Tories are going to do. And they don't want to be, seem to be the, the kind of, you know, the overspending people that are going to rise and bring in inflation to a ridiculous level, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So, it's just a, a horrible, horrible game. And it's not about us at all. It's just more Tories doing what Tories do. It's absolutely vile. Populist vile. So if they think they're going to maybe win the Red Wall people back after they got rid of Suella by um, uh, talking about 
Yeah, well, cuts. Well, who knows? It feels as if David Cameron's back and austerity is back with him. You know, the idea of trying to force thousands of disabled people back into work. This theory that loads of job vacancies, people maybe they've got disabilities, but maybe they could work from home, maybe accommodations can be made. And that's great in theory, but he wants to tell lawyers because they're not showing a great track record of trying to show accommodations to help disabled workers. They might say that and they might make the right noises, but when it comes down to it, disabled people face a lot of challenges if they want to get back into work. And one of which is employers are not that sympathetic if somebody's going to have a high sickness rate because they've got a recurrent uh, condition. You know, employers maybe will, will say that when somebody first starts a job, but, you know, six months in, if somebody's having to take too much time off, suddenly when it becomes an inconvenience, that goes out the window. And this idea that, well, if you just make it harder for people and and punish them for, for being out of work, that any of the problems goes away because they don't. They're still going to be there. And I think, I don't know if you heard Shona Robinson on the radio this morning as well. Yeah, pretty upfront, pretty honest. I would have said, you know, there's trouble ahead. We're not going to, you know, it's going to be really problematic. It's going to be problematic for public services, wages, etc., etc. And also, I was reading you know, Richard Murphy taking us further. It's not just about public services, it's about the infrastructure. It's a longer lasting, deeper effect, you know. Investment in social housing, flood protection, green transition, and we'll probably talk about that in a bit. Um, schools and hospitals impacted by these failing materials, the cost of materials. It's the whole damned infrastructure, really, that's going to take the, bear the brunt of these things. The other sort of points, not in statement, there was tax cuts, pension, some pension increases. A lot of it seemed like the kind of classic pre-election bribe. Do you think it'd be enough, it's going to be enough to save the Tories come the next general election, Sophie? No, um, I was going, going to touch on that issue as well. I think it's just the Tories grasping at straws in an attempt um, to stay in government, pretty much, as they're approaching this. The statement has no real help for, for people. You know, they're talking about, yeah, they might be increasing the pensions, but then days after the announcement was made, we've seen that the energy price cap has gone up again in January. And it's going to impact the people who are already struggling and all the bills and the cost of living that we're, they're seeing. So I don't know if it's going to make any real impact for these people who are already looking at the alternatives. I would agree with that, Sophie. I think the whole cost of living, I mean, it's, you know, I've heard, I haven't seen any polls, but I've heard the, poll, the Tories have bumped up a few points already just because of the whole kind of populist nature maybe behind their budget. But at the end of the day, I think that's right. The cost of living is, you know, has gone up. It's more difficult for people. So and everything, anything that people are given is taken away with the other hand. So, you know, with fuel and food and everything else. So it might, it might, I mean, I think the one thing I always remember about the polls, especially if we're talking about Labour and Tory down south, it's the same people that vote Labour or Tory. It's not like it's a whole different set of people that come in. So they can be swayed. Certain voters that go between Tory or Labour, I'm kind of suspicious about them. I mean, who knows? Things can change. I, don't know, I do, I do, wa- I do wonder about those, those people who are like that flip back and mm-hmm. forth like that. Like. Mm-hmm. I know they exist because the data says they exist, but I've never actually met somebody that goes back and forth between Labour and Tory. I wonder where mm-hmm. they are. No, it's Scotland. Them, no, you see them on the telly, don't you? When they vote for them, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's nice to think you don't know any or many Tories that appear. Just going back to the uh, some of the points about the COVID inquiry, one of the other things that came out was that um, 
Boris Johnson seemed completely out of his depth. Like, they were saying that he couldn't understand what the scientific advice he was getting. They had to be constantly reminded of things. I mean, it seems as if he's... More, we used to say he was like a British Trump, but it seems like he was more like Trump than we thought because there was this kind of idea that a lot of Boris's sort of bumbling idiot persona was kind of put on for, for political reasons. It's It seems to be coming out that he might be more of an idiot than we gave him credit for. Um, more of an idiot than we could. It always comes back to entitlement for me. I think if he puts his mind to anything, he, I don't know, I, I'm much, much more cynical about him, to be honest. And, uh, I know it's just a little thing, the whole thing about he ruffles his hair and all that, but I just think he's lazy and entitled. He's probably not that stupid. He's just doesn't care. He's just, I think he's just a bad person. <laughs> I think he's a, a waste of space, basically. He's lazy and entitled. I'm sorry, but that's how I see that guy. I think he made an important point there when he said um, he doesn't care. Do any of them actually care? Because there doesn't seem to be much changes, no matter who's who's Prime Minister here. If it's no. Boris Johnson, if it's Truss, is it Rishi? You know? yeah. I don't think any of them care. No. Do you remember when it was Dishy Rishi? People took him when you when you first did the furlough thing. I think that we bit of a sheen has gone off on me. Yeah, I always come back to if they were if they needed to support the service industry, why could they not just give them the money rather than subsidising people to get half price meals? But then I guess that's why I don't get I don't get elected to IU office. And now a word from our sponsor. Our sponsor this week is Sense of Nature Pet Service, based in Central Scotland. Sense of Nature gives you a hands-on, personalised experience with a variety of exciting creatures. From snakes and skunks to tarantulas and turtles, Sense of Nature has something for everyone. They offer sensory sessions, one-to-one and group sessions, educational encounters for children of all ages, and they are available for private events upon inquiry. Animal welfare is at the forefront of everything they do, and if appropriate, a risk assessment can be carried out at no additional cost prior to your booking. To get 5% off your next booking with Sense of Nature, quote Holyrood Unguide 5 at time of booking. To contact Sense of Nature, you can do so by email on sense.of.natureinquiries at outlook.com. You can also find them on most social media platforms by searching for Sense of Nature. Next item in tonight's agenda, Scotland's only oil refinery could cease operations as soon as 2025 under plans announced by its owners. The company said Grangemouth had been facing significant challenges because of global market pressures. The company intends to turn the site into a fuel import terminal which would result in the loss of at least 400 jobs. Oil operations at Grangemouth can be traced back to 1919. The refinery was established in 1924 and is one of the first crude oil refineries in the UK. Sophie, what's your thoughts on this? It's obviously quite a difficult one in terms of you do understand that they might have been running at a loss, but I think the process has to be adjusted in gradual transition in order to you know protect jobs and prevent any kind of harm, especially kind of harm that may be seen under you know the 1980s Thatcher government situation. Um, I have seen some stuff regarding the notion that it was closed under the, the opposition to the oil and gas in the North Sea stuff. You know, it doesn't really make a lot of sense considering the government has issued quite a lot of licences for this kind of work. 
literally a matter of months ago. I, I do think it's kind of all just about corporate power in the end. Yeah, I echo all of that. Um, the first thing that came to me, yeah, we hate fossil fuels and all these things, but that's not the way to to do it and it does it a lot of parallels that's what I kept thinking about with Thatcher and the miners and it's the same thing really uh, devastated communities so you know the, the buzzwords or whatever just transition weren't around at that time but it's the same thing I mean we we're talking about kind of like maybe 2045 as a projected time before we were ready to, to release it or make that big change but Nobody cares. And I mean, it's like, um, you know, as you say, in the kind of corporate mindset, I start to worry about fracking coming back again. It makes, you know, it makes us more dependent. And it, one of the first things I'm thinking is, damn it, we voted no in 2014. We have no devolved energy policy, no just transition. And it all needs investment. It's limited by our borrowing powers and there's no political will because I think like green policies have been incorporated into culture wars by this uh, government as well. And as Sophie says, you know, they're giving out licences, bit of contradictory there. But yeah, we're, we're dependent, and that's us more dependent now. We'll arrive there, but we can't refine it. So yeah, it's a horrible thing having to defend the whole fossil fuel thing, but it just wasn't the time. It's the whole knock-on effect of the whole community. It's not just the workers in, in the area, it's the whole community. Yeah, I mean, everybody that's, that's no completely focused in like short-term Profits knows that we need to transition away from fossil fuels. But that's the thing is the environmentalists are saying, let's make this a long term plan. Let's transition so that jobs are protected. So that oil workers are only the ones that have to suffer when we make this big change. Like you mentioned, Sophie, you know, the government have issued all these new licenses to drill in the North Sea, which will be a disaster for global efforts against climate change. Uh, but at the same time, they're throwing workers in the scrap heap. So we're getting the worst of both worlds here. You know, the workers are still suffering and we're not even getting any of the benefits of moving to a more environmentally friendly energy system because there's been that constant thing of trying to pit like people that work in the oil and gas industry against environmentalists mm-hmm. and i think certainly in scotland uh, the environmentalists that i know are all the biggest champions of workers rights and there's no any natural conflict there as an environmentalist i don't want to see you know oil workers be put out of work it wasn't the workers that caused this climate crisis it was the ones at the top and it's the same ones that are going to keep making their profits while the world's burning and while the people that previously worked for them end up on a scrap heap desperate to get another job somewhere. I think that's the thing as well. It's the workers and the trade unions and even the governments, especially, you know, like the Scottish government's come out talking about it. And like you said, we have no power to, to deal with this. It's them who's now having to scramble around trying to figure out how, how we deal with this going forward. How we deal with this for the community, like you said, Phil, as well. So Yeah, I mean, they've threatened to close Grangemouth before. The company, you know, I think they'd done it in 2013 when they were in the middle of an industrial de- dispute with the trade union. They threatened to uh, close Grange Mouth in response. And then in 2020, they said they need to close it because of the pandemic. So, I mean, again, treading towards conspiratorial grounds here, but I can't help but wonder if they're announcing this now in order to extort something, either try to get something out of the government or try to get something out of the trade unions. Yeah, unless he's uh, realising his little nest egg. I heard something about he wanted to buy a football club or something with him. Yeah, he's bought a stake in Manchester United. What's that? What it is? Mm. This is so. the guy that Ratcliffe didn't he talk about? If such and such happened, he was going to leave Scotland and all this. It's, yeah, he's it's a big unionist. Aye. Oh yeah. Well, obviously, aye. 
enjoying his power. Yeah, it's just extremely cruel, short-term thinking, frightening to think that's another another community and and just say the bigger picture is going to leave Scotland more more dependent dependent on imports and other refineries. There's still other refineries. I think this refinery in is it Merseyside and elsewhere down south. So, yeah, but yeah, I was thinking about that as well. It's like, and again, I feel as a, I, I hate conspiracy theories, but you know, sometimes you find yourself getting drawn into it. But yeah. you know, like, why would you close the only oil refinery in Scotland when that's where the oil is? Exactly. You know, crazy. Would Scotland be the first oil producing nation that's completely reliant on their neighbour to refine the oil for them? And then yeah. this is ta- this is taking the conspiracy to a next level. I wonder who are all the oil exports got to get counted and. The jails figures for England now instead of Scotland. Yeah, there was uh, there was a whole yeah there was stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the parallels with the whole mining thing and the asset stripping. It's just it's a continuation of a project, doesn't it? That started in the nineteen eighties, and so it goes on. And our, I don't know where our trade unions are at the moment, but it certainly lost a lot of power there as well. There must be an awful lot of I don't know, maybe it's the time of year as well, and you can feel the kind of energy sinking, but just when you need to fight the most, it must be a devastating feeling to be in that situation up there. Yeah, it must be, it must be very worrying for all the, the workers and their families sort of to yeah. get this news kind of before Christmas and... Exactly. You know, and this is possibly in the horizon. Just, yeah, I agree with everything that's been said so far. I don't know if I have anything to add to that, but it's up to wait and see what happens when negotiations. I mean, like you said, Sophie, it is a, it's a difficult one between balancing the, you know, the need to move away from fossil fuels, but you also, you know, fossil fuels are still here. It's still a, a part of the world and Scotland will need a certain energy security. So the idea of losing the only refinery seems like it would be a, certainly a setback for independent Scotland and they want to still kind of have one foot in the oil industry, but no, actually have the kind of control that the refinery would give you. It does feel like spite, doesn't it? It does feel, I mean, again, that gets back into this slightly conspiratorial area, but it really does feel like some powerful people just doing something quite spiteful, putting us back in our box. And like you said, Val, if we'd voted yes in 2014 and and, and independent state, we could be talking about nationalising Grange Mouth at the moment. Yeah. I mean, it's still technically... It's still technically possible, but somehow I don't see Rishi Sunak rushing into nationalised mm-hmm. Greenmouth to help the, the workers there and to help Scotland's mm-hmm. energy um, needs. And it's going to set us back decades on, on you know, sort of like, um, well, the whole climate change thing anyway, isn't it? I mean, every decision that's made in this direction against green energy, against green anything is just another nail in the coffin really. We're handing down a horrible legacy to younger people. Yeah, I think that's the point as you said, David, about Grangemouth you know, it does represent a very critical infrastructure for Scotland and it's going to have its own role within the transition, or it would have always have had its own role in terms of the transition to a kind of net zero world of Scotland but it is a bit like, well, where does this leave us now? Okay, uh, I'll move on to our final point of this evening. The Scottish Parliament has backed a government motion calling for an immediate ceasefire in the conflict in the Gaza Strip. 
as well as condemning the barbaric and justifiable Hamas, Hamas attacks on October 7th and demanding the release of all hostages. A Labour amendment calling for the International Criminal Court to investigate the conduct of all parties in the conflict was also agreed. A Conservative amendment calling for humanitarian pauses instead of an immediate ceasefire was voted down. A total of 90 MSPs voted for the government motion, while 28, all of which were Tory, voted against it. There were also 11 MSPs that weren't present for the vote. It means the Scottish Parliament joins the parliaments of Wales, Ireland and Catalonia in calling for a ceasefire. Val, what's your thoughts on this? Yeah, well, before I have my rant about Labour, just to warn you, I'd say first and foremost, I'm glad that vote did pass. It was expected it would be all Tories who would vote against it. As I say, this kind of developing theme... Labour's hypocrisy, um, as we know very well that the two MPs, uh, Labour MPs, voted with Starmer. We know that Sarwar is a bumbling, spineless person when it comes to trying to tread the line between um, Sarwar and look different, put kind of clear blue water between Scottish, so-called Scottish Labour and Westminster Labour. So I'm no, I'm no fan of Martin Geisler, but he did put, I don't know if you saw the wee clip where he puts the pressure on Sarwar to say whether he would have voted with the SNP in Westminster. Sarwar couldn't answer and he just did this continuous both-siding thing. Geisler was saying, oh, this is about this is actually about who is running Labour. This is about Scottish Labour. This is what we don't want to know. To me, well, yeah, to a point, but I also think, as you say, David, it's important to make a statement from a small country with its own devolved parliament or, you know, all of this, including Catalonia, we would all want to have relevance in the international stage. We don't want to be put back into our box. I think it is important to stand out and to say, Yes, this is what Scotland thinks and what Scotland feels. Um, so, and also the Tories, well, that's, I suppose the reason I focus on Labour is because we know the Tories in Scotland are going nowhere fast. They're, they're sinking. So I was thinking about, we need to hear stronger language from our politicians. I was reading today about the St Andrews rector facing calls for resignation for using language like genocide and apartheid, and she's not so good. So I would like to hear more strength like that from our politicians. Yeah, there obviously is no place for the atrocities that we're seeing in Gaza. Um, so I'm happy to see that there was support for from nearly all of the parties um, within the Scottish Parliament. The the Tory amendment that they put up about the humanitarian pause, I'm not surprised by it, considering how their party in general has been acting, but it is extremely disappointing, because realistically, the only way to save any of the innocent lives is through a full and immediate ceasefire. There wasn't, you can't just pause it for a few days and let it go back to what it was. With um, what Val was saying about maybe some of the language could could be a bit stronger. Yeah, I was just going to say, I feel a lot of pride that our Parliament's one of the few to stand up and call for peace. You look at the sort of opinion polls across Europe, there's clear majorities among citizens of most countries against this kind of collective punishment that the Israeli government's um, dishing out to the Palestinian people. But it's quite shocking how few governments are reflecting what their people feel. I'm glad to see that Scotland's one of them that's bucking that trend and standing up because it's... And we spoke about it in the last few episodes... You know, the things that you're seeing in social media are absolutely heartbreaking and how anybody can not 
be screaming for a ceasefire and an end to this is beyond me. I, I don't know. I don't know where your heart is if you can look at that. And the best you can say is, well, okay, we'll pause it for a wee bit, but you know, we'll need to get back on it. What you were saying about the Labour Party, yeah, it's you know a real contrast the way the Scottish Labour and West uh, Holyrood are behaving uh, compared to last week, where the so 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 called Scottish Labour MPs voted voted along the lines of what the UK leader was saying and you know it was nice to see Anna Sarward getting held to account a bit in this but it's really kind of shocking where you basically have a party that's trying to pretend it's two separate parties but it's so clearly not um, but the rules of Scottish Labour Anna Sarwar is the boss of those two MPs but it's clear that the reality is so different you know they changed the rules it used to be I think it was when Jim Murphy became leader or maybe just after that they changed it from being the leader of Sc- Labour in the Scottish Parliament to the leader of Labour in Scotland. But okay. it, it's so obvious that that is just a, that was just a media affectation. Yeah. Some might say Scottish Labour is a media affectation. I would never be so bold. But it's quite clear that these two Labour MPs do not consider Anna Sarwar their boss because otherwise they would have, if, if their conscience wasn't enough to get them to vote for the ceasefire, then surely your boss telling you to would be but their boss is Dennis Sarwell. We all know that. Their boss is Keir Starmer, yeah. and they listen to him. And I'm sorry to say one of them's my MP, uh, Michael Shanks, but hopefully that'll get rectified at the next um, the next election because certainly there's a lot of anger locally to his attitude in this. Uh, I've noticed quite a few of his yeah. tweets. He's limiting the replies now because most people, no matter what he's tweeting about, people are angry about his voting. That's ceasefire. And yet we saw it coming. I mean, he wasn't a brave guy. He didn't want to... Debate the SNP candidate before I uh, again. It does for me. It comes down a lot to the whole our our national broadcaster, BBC Radio Scotland. I mean, I do remember twenty years ago now when Ruth Davison was one of their presenters and she was one of the lobbies, and they must have been right into the Tories at that time. But now they feel like. New Labour shills as though they're just squeezing them in. Uh, maybe I'm into the land of conspiracy here, but that does, that is how it feels. I must, be, I must admit, not a single thing the next day because I didn't follow the debate. I think it was on Tuesday. I wanted to hear we something about it on the radio the next day just to see what they would say. Nothing. And so what is that about? I mean, are they uncomfortable with Labour's dual situation or is it a case of get back in your box, Scotland? Or what? I don't know. But I know as soon as all of this began, um, after October, not begin, I still like to keep saying it began in 1948, but you know, the October the 7th thing, our first minister was the one that was getting called the first minister of Gaza and get back in your box and how dare you discuss, you know, another country's affairs, etc., etc. Just this horrible parochial attitude. So. Yeah, we, we really do need it. So that, it does, it comes back to it seems it's a good thing it did pass, but I just cannot, I couldn't trust Labour for anything. And thinking about how they all passed, including Anna Sarwar, they had voted for gender reform, didn't they? But they were nowhere to be seen when the Tories came for it. It was Nicola Sturgeon that took the fall for that. I just do not trust them. I don't trust them. Yeah, the, the Tories were, you know, Again, a complete outlier on the Scottish Parliament. Some of their contribu- contributions were, were pathetic. Um, it was Donald Cameron, he stood up and he was, he was, I mean, there's literally like thousands of people dying, but he was more angry that the Scottish Parliament didn't raise the, uh, the Israeli flag. Two weeks ago, it's still, 
he thought that was the most important thing to talk about in that debate. Sandesh Gohain, he said that calling for an immediate ceasefire would be setting ourselves up to fail. What does that even mean? Oh, we better not call for peace in case nobody listens and all it's stupid. You know, like, it's absolute nonsense. Like, like nobody thinks, like, because the Scottish Parliament passed this calling for a ceasefire that it will change anything on the ground in Gaza. But you still have to shout for it. It doesn't matter, like, if a local council passes it, it's not going to make a difference. But it's still important to say it. You know, it's still important to get that down in history that you were against this and you don't want it to happen. And, you know, if it gives somebody in Gaza that's getting bombs right now a wee bit of hope to know that there's people out there that think thinking of them and hoping that they're okay, you know, then it's worth it. But Tories think, you know, don't set ourselves up to fail be calling for a ceasefire. There was also Megan Gallagher, I'm sure she thought she was very profound. She spent a full five minutes reading out the names of the 200 plus people taken hostage by Hamas, then voting against a motion that was calling for them to be released. So I don't really know what her logic is there. That's incredible. Uh, <laughs> by the way, it would take a lot longer if you stood up to read the names of the Palestinian victims of the IDF. They would still, she'd still be standing there now saying them. So I hope she, hope she was pleased with herself, but I don't think it was as profound, as important as she probably thought it was in her eyes. Yeah, final thought really is, and it's the one that I can't get out of my head, is that they are essentially voting for those that do vote against a ceasefire. They're voting for other people's children. They're voting for people in a foreign country. Something bad to happen to other people's children, other people's family. They can't make the connection. And that's just... Unbelievable. Final thoughts, Sophie? I just think what you were saying about the Tories is a wee bit like the, you know, to be silent is to be complacent situation. And it kind of goes back to what you were saying as well, Val, about, you know, it doesn't impact us, it's impacting someone else. It's that kind of disconnect to it all. And it's just, you know, in the face of all the devastation and the suffering that we're seeing, I'm glad to see that, at least within the Parliament, our, our Parliament in Scotland, that humanity is prevailing. You know, we've, we've shown, the First Minister has shown a lot of leadership on this. And I'm glad that overall the Scottish Parliament had been strong on this matter. Well, that's all for us tonight. Um, you can find all our podcasts at leftungag.org as well as written articles and you can sign up for our free newsletter. You can also catch the Talking Sense podcast from Kat and Erin. If you've got anything you'd like us to tweet, uh, talk about, uh, you can tweet us at underscore ungagged, hashtag Hollywood ungagged, or email us ungaggedleft at gmail.com. Put Hollywood ungagged in the subject line. You can also join our signal group. We have a thriving community where you can chat to all of us and get involved with ungagged. And if you enjoyed this, please give us five stars in whatever podcast platform you use. Until then, have fun, be good, and be lucky. Bye, everybody. It's a while, and it was nice, nice to leave. 